This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most, my beautiful audience all around the world. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you listening. I appreciate you writing me and appreciate the support of the Patreons. Thanks to Matthew Wayne Selznick, our technical wizard on the West Coast. Have a fascinating guest today who has co-written a really powerful book. It's called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet. Talking about an important topic, I think this is the number one topic. We keep doing a lot of shows on this, and I'm glad that you like it because we get a lot of responses. I can't imagine a more important, urgent thing for our race, our civilization. And I'm just honored to finally welcome to the family the co-author of the book, Mr. Justin Gillis. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. You've been at the environmental reporting scene a long time. How did you end up in that arena? That's not something a lot of people tend to go towards. And because you were so out in front on it, now it's become, I think, the most important issue. I ended up there out of sheer frustration, uh, actually. Uh, uh, You know, many years ago, uh, I was a young reporter in the 1980s. I I could today probably take you to the spot on Fort Lauderdale Beach where uh, a scientist uh, down in Florida, where a scientist uh, first explained to me that the ocean was rising. And so I got fascinated with this climate thing. Uh, but just as an observer, really, for, for a long, long time. And, uh, and part of what I was observing was how poor the journalism of it was uh, and how poor the politics were, right? Uh, uh, you know, here's this you know, obviously urgent, you know, profoundly threatening problem. And for many decades, there was just no effective political response. And I kept saying to myself, I wonder when somebody's going to take this seriously, right? Both in journalism and in, and in, and in leadership in politics. Uh, There's an old saying in the, in the newspaper business that if you complain about the coverage of something often enough, they make you do it. And uh, do it yourself. And that that's, you know, in a thumbnail, that's sort of what happened to me. I mean, I was, you know, whining about the coverage for a long, long time. And, um, uh, you know, uh, by chance, I guess, as much as anything else, a few doors opened up. And so I wound up uh, uh, first working as an editor at the New York Times with some responsibility for energy coverage and uh, you know, therefore, ability to influence climate coverage. And I'd done that for about three years when I was recruited back into reporting uh, to take over uh, the the main um, the main climate science reporting job at the times. And so I did that for close to a decade. So uh, you know, eventually, the answer to your question is uh, I, I got into it because, um, you know, I was vain enough, I suppose, to think I can make a little bit of a difference. And I have to say, in in those years, the co- the coverage has improved dramatically. You know, we now have halfway decent journalism on this subject, uh, and we're beginning to have a political response, inadequate though it still is. Justin, why has the issue been sort of backpaged, neglected, ignored when 
there is no stock market, no sports leagues, no dancing with the stars without a livable world. It just feels like I'm going to reference the movie. Don't look up. The comment is heading here. That would, to me, should be the front page story until we figure it out. You know, I, I once said to somebody, you could, you could probably teach an entire college course in a journalism school about problems that are too big to cover. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one of those would be global poverty and the other would be climate change. And what I mean by too big to cover is uh, that they're so big, they're so enormous and they're so all encompassing uh, that, that they challenge uh, and really confound and defeat uh, the conventions of journalism. And for that matter, the conventions of politics. I mean, you know, journalism and politics are, you know, relatively focused on the short term, uh, relatively focused on, you know, tractable issues that people can sort of wrap their minds around. You know, here comes a problem, climate, that um, is about, you know, intergenerational justice, right? You know, it, it calls on us to have a moral imagination about the fate of people who are going to live, uh, uh, you, you know, 100 years from now, right? Or, or 300 years from now, or 500 years from now. And, uh, you know, it's slow moving, which, which is a very difficult thing for journalism. I mean, journalism just doesn't cover gradual social change or gradual issues very well. And, and here's a problem that, I mean, you wake up tomorrow and it's not going to be very different at all than it was today, right? I mean, we may have another heat wave. We will. Uh, you know, we're being challenged now by, and, you know, that's part of what's changing, of course, is people are beginning to be able to see the visible effects, right? And, uh, and, and I think that is changing the politics. But for a long, long time, this was just this problem that was off in the distance that was very easy to ignore. And you could sort of look out your, your back window for many decades and say, hmm, I don't really see anything changing, right? And, um, and you know, that would have been true then. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's probably still true to a large degree. So uh, I, think, I think the nature of the problem uh, just, just confounds us. I mean, the human mind is not really built. Um, you know, to think in really large numbers, it's certainly not built to think in gigatons of emissions of carbon, this or carbon dioxide, this invisible substance in the atmosphere. Uh, uh, you know, the, the human mind is not built to sort of worry about, um, you know, the distant future. Although it is true, there are faith traditions, some of the Native American um, faith traditions uh, called for thinking about the consequences of your actions unto the seventh generation in the future, right? So uh, it's not entirely unprecedented. And, and, you know, Judaism has a strain of thought like this too. It's not unprecedented to, to, to call on people to think about the long range future, but it's, it's not really the way we operate. And so um, I think put all those things together, and this has just been a very hard problem uh, for journalism to figure out how to cover and a really hard problem for politics to figure out how to tackle. Well, I think you completely nailed that. I don't think our brains are wired for it. It's invisible. It's not even an asteroid you can see. And it's like this invisible menace. And yet we see that it is intruding more and more with these floods, record heat waves. The Mississippi is drying up. The Colorado, the rivers across Europe. Suddenly you don't have food. 
And when it was really cool to have a 78 degree day in December in New York, it's not so cool when it's 115 degrees in London or 141 in Madrid. The problem is, too, I think there is vast special interests that are working hard to kind of keep us not thinking about it. And, and then they own pol politicians who, you know, say, oh, it snowed or yesterday. So how could there be global warming? You know, that level of idiocracy. Yeah, it's all it's all true. And um, and, you know, I mean, there there is an enormous resistance and and sort of built in um, inertia coming from the special interests Uh you know, the fossil fuel interests that have a lot at stake in kind of confusing us. Um, but I mean, I, I think the bigger problem, honestly, is just the the sheer power of, of our kind of normal human inertia here. You know, I mean, people react to immediate threats. People react to problems that seem urgent. Uh, we've all got a lot to worry about, right? And so it's quite difficult to you know, devote much of your mind share to this, you know, enormous, difficult, huge problem that you 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 feel so disempowered about in the first place and and don't really know what to do about. And, we, you know, which is the reason we wrote our book, basically, is to try to uh, tackle that problem. So, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's true that we're up against special interests, but, you know, that's been true many times before in politics and people have sort of come together and, and figured out how to overcome the special interests and, and, and put up a fight. And that's sort of where we are, right? We, we don't have still an adequate public demand for change. Uh, and uh, you know, it's not like we need every single person in America. I mean, the, you know, there, there's an estimate, I don't know how accurate it is that, in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, only about 2% of the American people ever went out and marched in the streets. Uh, uh, and, you know, if that's not right, it's gotta be some, you know, low number like that. Uh, you know, we need people marching, uh, we, you know, with luck, we, are, you know, we can get to sort of two or 3% of people who care enough uh, to march or to make political demands of some kind. Uh, and, you know, that's going to be a lot of sort of people power going up against the special, the special interests. We, you know, there's a famous saying of Frederick Douglass or, or a line he used in a, in a speech, uh, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. And, you know, this is where we are. We, we need to make a demand and we really need to make a whole complicated you know, menu of demands at sort of all levels of uh, government if we're going to move this problem to any, to any significant degree. And um, again, I think the public is just beginning to figure that out. We have seen now one presidential cycle in our lifetimes where um, people succeeded in forcing this issue to the top of the political agenda. And lo and behold, we've gotten some pretty significant legislation out of Congress as a direct result of that. I hope that's the first of those cycles and that everyone from here on out will feature uh, similar political demands. But, you know, we've got to broaden the playing field too, the, the field of battle. We need to be fighting these battles at the state level, at the local level, even at the school board. People don't understand that their school board, you know, has decisions to make here about uh, the future of climate change. So, 
um, this is, you know, this is what our book is about is, is explaining to people how you can get involved and what the demands are that we need to make. Knowing all, you know, how do you stay so calm? I have the luxury of having a lot of the top climate scientists on multiple times, people like you, Hal Harvey, others across the board. And we also talk offline, you know, off the show. And I see so much alarming data and this trajectory. And I am a calm person, but I catch myself almost every day looking around going, hey, we better wake up. I feel like this is coming and it's probably going to be a lot harder and more destructive than we know. Things we thought were going to happen in 2050 are happening now. Ice sheets melting, you name it. And I feel like we're letting a, gen a dark genie out of the bottle that's not easily controlled. How do you manage all that and just, you know, go about your day getting the coffee and doing everything and staying calm? Well, I'm not that calm really about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of, you know, worked up enough to like write a whole book, you know, to quit my job and spend five years writing a book, for example. Uh, uh, there, There is an element here, though, where... Uh, you know, if you're going to work on this problem, you, you do have to develop a bit of uh, uh, a Zen mindset about it, right? I mean, you can't, it, it doesn't do any good, I think, to, you know, uh, run around screaming with your hair on fire, you know, and, and um, even some of the political tactics of, you know, hectoring people and such, I'm not sure how much that helps. I, it's, it's just, it's, it's this big, hard, vexatious problem. It is, uh, it's a problem that will not be solved even in our lifetimes. Uh, I mean, I don't expect to live to see the end of uh, greenhouse gases, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. I, I told somebody not that long ago, the beginning of this year, actually, I said, I would like to at least live, I'm 62. And I said, I would like to at least live to see the United States committed, which it was not. And, you know, miraculously, this huge bill, you know, this very important bill passed, um, uh, you know, Congress, uh, of, you know, a few weeks ago. And, you know, now we are committed, um, uh, not as committed as we should be, but we're, we've, we've come a long way off zero. So uh, I just, you know, one just has to recognize this is a long twilight struggle. And, uh, you know, those of us who are in the struggle are, you know, we're trying to recruit other people. We're trying to make the biggest movement we can. Uh, but in the last analysis, you have to say to yourself, I'm, I'm, I will do what I can. And there, I can't do any more than that. Right. There, you know, it, it, this is just way bigger than one, than any one person or any group, you know, ever will be. And so, um, that's the key. I think it's a bit of, uh, it's a bit of jujitsu, you know, a, a mental gymnastics of committing what mind share you can to this, to this struggle, but you have to live your life, right? What a beautiful answer. And I get a lot of emails from people from all ages, especially younger, who feel like we're doomed. And I've talked to Dr. Michael Mann, the great climate scientist on the show and off the air. And we can't go to doom because then we will be doomed. And what I liked about your book, what really touched me, inspired me and got me fired up to have you guys on was the actions that you could take to at least be part of the solution. And I like to tell people that action is the remedy, the antidote to feeling helpless and doomed. 
any positive action. Don't you find that, uh, Justin, that by being involved, at least trying to make a difference, you, you kind of lay off the despair and the oh, no, even though you're aware of all those facts, you at least feel like you're doing something. And that's all you can do is something your part, wherever that is in the world, that you're just part of something that's trying to help this thing become a solution. I think I think that's exactly right. And um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the mental shift that people need to make, I think a lot of people respond to this problem by saying i've heard i've heard this a million times on college campuses people will will you know i'll give a speech or whatever and and in, in invariably somebody will get up and say something like uh this this problem is so big and i feel so small you know what can i do and the way that people have, have historically responded to that is by thinking about their lives as consumers right so you know, the thing you can control is what you buy and, you know, sort of how you live your own life. And so um, we have seen people engage on this problem uh, in in that way. So, you know, people worry about, you know, are they recycling enough? And uh, people worry about plastic straws and people worry about, you know, plastic water bottles and uh, and they worry about their energy consumption. And you probably got a lot of conscientious listeners out there who buy the, you know, the smallest car they reasonably can, or uh, if they're in a kind of city that allows it, you know, no car at all, right? And and get around on, on bikes. And um, so it's good that people do all those things, but I think the mental shift we have to make is to understand that the systems we're trying to change are really enormous, right? The systems that deliver uh, energy to us um, are, I mean, by, by a lot of measures, it's the biggest industry in the world. And that's what we're trying to uh, change. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to make that much difference by, you know, a, a relative handful of the population sort of caring about their lives as consumers, then I'm not saying that's unimportant to do. It is important, but uh, it's important mainly as a gateway, I think, to thinking about the larger political questions. And, you know, what we need is a is an intelligent politics of climate here where, uh, you know, not only are we thinking about our lives as consumers, but we're thinking about our lives as citizens. And, you know, what Hal and I say in the book is, uh, Hal Harvey, my co-author, and I say in the book is we need to make the mental shift from being green consumers to being green citizens. At a bare minimum, that concerns how you vote, right? And um, and sort of moving this issue up uh, on your your list of voting issues. Uh, you know, I would argue putting it pretty close to the top, if not at the top. Uh, but in addition to that. Uh, you know, we need people engaging directly, uh, not, you know, 40 hours a week necessarily, or even four hours a week, but, uh, but we need political engagement by the public at every level. As I said, you know, the school board matters. The school board is deciding, you know, whether they're going to buy a new batch of diesel buses or whether they're going to, you know, finally make the, <clears throat> excuse me, make the switch to electric buses, which are the, you know, the hot new thing. And, and, uh, so, you know, why aren't citizens going down to the school board making their voices heard on that question? Uh, why aren't more of us 
engaging with these committees in every state that run the that effectively run the power system and you know control what gets built. This is the sort of thing we need to do: is direct political engagement in the important decisions that are being made. The great Al Gore had a phrase. He spoke to me directly once here in Nashville when he said, "It's important to change the light bulbs." but it's more important to change the laws. And that's what I hear you saying. We have to become part of the political movement as well as to do our best in our daily lives to make our footprint less. But the more important thing is we need mass consensus. We need the kind of bills that Biden just passed times 10. We need a green Marshall plan. We need to lead the way. And I feel like this is the, I have goosebumps just saying those words. I feel like, uh, the opportunity of a hundred lifetimes is sitting there, a trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar economic boom. The spirit of changing things for the better, for the, give the country purpose. People need purpose. It's all sitting there. And I know human beings hate to change and there's inertia, but if with the right leadership and some momentum and books like you guys have created and others like Paul Hawken and Drawdown, this, this could be the greatest thing ever. Or it could be, you know, when some other species from another place comes, goes, oh, this was the opportunity to not be extinct and it wasn't taken. So here we look at this. Here are the bones. I feel like that's the crossroads. I, I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, we're, we're in a particularly critical moment right now because the bill that Congress just passed what it basically does is it changes the economics of clean energy. It, it improves the economics of um, clean energy, clean cars, uh, uh, you know, these, these, these systems that we need to, where we need to make big, big changes. What Congress did not do was take away a lot of the barriers that are sort of uh, already, you know, we're already slowing down those changes. So. For instance, I mean, we need new power lines in this country if we're going to generate a lot of renewable energy and move it all over the place. And um, you've still got people out there who fight, you know, every new power line, which is just not what we need right now. Uh, you know, I mean, the voters of, of Maine just voted down a power line that would have bought, brought um, renewable energy down from Canada into um you know into new england and um i'm sorry but that was a mistake and and uh so we the public uh have still not embraced the changes that are going to be necessary i mean we have to be willing to say yes to these big renewable energy projects we have to be willing to see um you know wind and solar farms you know develop across a broad swath of the american landscape uh, you know, if we if we if we insist on vetoing all of it, uh, then what we're going to get uh, is, you know, the, the bill that Congress passed essentially bogging down and uh, and we're not going to get the, the the sweeping changes that we need. So um, there, there's just still it would be a real mistake to look at what passed on the Hill this year and say, oh, problem solved. Uh, actually, the problem has just begun which is how to capitalize on what Congress did and make it real on the ground. Will you talk about the seven practical steps in your fantastic book? Yeah, they're really, they're really, I'll, I'll give a few examples. I don't know if we want to run through the entire list. They're, they're really seven, 
areas or topics, if you will, what, what we do is we break the economy into uh, six uh, sectors that, that, need, that need substantial change. And these are just the sectors where, uh, uh, you know, where the emissions occur. Uh, and so a lot of them would be obvious to your listeners, I think, you know, transportation is one of them. Uh, buildings is one of them. The electricity system is one of them. Uh, uh, you know, industry is uh, is one of them. Uh, the the how we build cities, you know, or how how we currently badly build cities is um, is one of the big issues. So there's six of those, and and in each we suggest a practical strategy for people to have an influence. And if you want, we can talk through some of those strategies. Uh, the seventh area where, uh, you know, how we get to seven steps is we have a chapter called Inventing the Future. Uh, and it's about all the stuff we don't have yet, technologies and, uh, you know, and business methods and, and, uh, organizational systems that we don't have yet that we're going to need to make this work. Uh, and so that seventh chapter is a call for the American public to support uh, a lot of new research and development, which I'm happy to say, you know, the book went to press uh, or, or we closed the book uh, before these uh, this bill passed in Washington this summer. Uh, but to some extent, what we called for in the book in, in that chapter seven um, did did pass in the bill that Biden got through, although not enough, you know, I mean, we still need more. But uh, so that's sort of how we get to seven steps. And, you know, they're not really steps in the sense of steps up a ladder. They're really a bunch of things that need to happen more or less in parallel, although it's true that, you know, the most urgent and most immediate is sort of cleaning up the electric grid. And the, the reason for that is, uh if we clean up the electric grid and squeeze emissions out of the electric grid, which we sort of know how to do now, uh, then we can hang. So cars are one example, right? You can run cars on the electric grid if we go to electric cars, but we don't really want to be running them on a coal heavy grid. We want to be running them on a clean grid, right? So uh, the, the strategy is clean up electricity and then electrify everything or everything that we can uh, electrify. And so Another example is building heating, building heating, right? That's a lot of that's done with gas right now by burning natural gas. Well, that's going to have to stop, uh, you know, if we're going to meet our climate goals. And so a strategy there is to install a device called the heat pump, which can, uh, you know, uh, heat and cool your building uh, and do it with electricity rather than by burning gas. And so uh, what readers will find if they if they crack open the book is um, a description of what needs to change in each of those seven areas, and then practical suggestions for how sort of real people out in the real world can help to make it happen. What are some of the general strategies that are easy for people to just get started? Well, I keep bringing up this thing about the school board. I, you know. Yeah, I don't understand why a lot of parents aren't already more worked up about this. So, uh, you know, we've got children, we've got millions of school children getting on diesel buses all over America every morning and being hauled off to school on, you know, probably a 
reasonably old, you know, fairly dirty bus that's belching diesel smoke, you know, diesel fumes. Uh, we have studies that say that children riding to school on diesel buses are four, four, four or five times more likely to have asthma attacks than children who don't. So kids are being exposed to, you know, these kind of immediate, you know, acute toxins as a result of the diesel buses, on top of which these things are, you know, causing emissions that contribute to uh, to climate change, you know, and thus wrecking the planet on which those children are going to have to live. Uh, and, you know, we have a solution, which is which is electric school buses. Now, it's true that they are more expensive right now. Uh, uh, the price is coming down. And the faster we make the conversion to electric buses, the, the faster the price will come down. Same with all these other technologies. Uh, and, you know, the operating costs of electric buses are so much lower that if you do it right, if you do a lease or that sort of thing, you can kind of even out the cost of the dirty buses versus the clean buses. So we've already got jurisdictions doing that. You know, Montgomery County, Maryland has committed to converting their entire bus fleet over to electric. Uh, a bunch of other school boards are experimenting. Uh, but we, we still don't have a mass movement of parents going down to school boards and demanding it. Why isn't that happening all over America right now? I just don't understand that. I mean, it's an obvious thing to do. And, you know, when I sort of explain it to people, a lot of them have just never heard of it, right? They, they have, they didn't occur to them that there's maybe a role. Uh, and, you know, school boards listen to parents. I mean, if, if a group of parents goes down for two or three meetings and, you know, makes a demand, um, they're going to be heard. It may take a while to sort of get, you know, open up the imagination of the school board members and get them off the dime, but it can be done. Uh, so that's one example. I mean, there are many others, you know, cities and counties uh, uh, that of any size at all, they operate fleets of cars for their workers. This year, most of them will once again buy gasoline burning cars because that's what they've always done. And nobody, their constituents, are not getting in their faces saying, wait a minute, uh, why are you doing that? Why aren't you looking to go to cleaner cars, right? So um, th there are just many, many of these examples where our task is to get in the faces of politicians and shake them out of their lethargy on this subject. That's so simple and basic, and I had not heard of that either. I knew electric buses were amazing. And so many of these solutions are not gigantic catastrophic types of things. It, they're very simple and the technologies are right there. It just takes a little political will, bit of a mass movement, a consensus, and you can relaunch the momentum. It's true. And, you know, of course, the difficulty with the strategy we're suggesting is it's got to be done over and over again, right? I mean, it's got to be done in Wichita. It's got to be done in Kansas City. Uh, you know, it, it, it desperately needs to be done, you know, not just in the blue states where, you know, you've got a constituency that's concerned about this problem, it needs to be done in the red states too. And so, um, you know, we do need a kind of a retail mass movement, if you will, of enough people to sort of go and, and make these demands. Um, there are things that people really don't know. We kind of describe in the book, we, we call these secret levers. Uh, about how the economy operates. And they're, they're secret in the sense that just most people don't know about them. Um, but let me give you an example. If, if you live in a state that has adopted 
California's rules on clean cars, uh, which uh, states are allowed to do. They can either have the federal government's rules or they can have California's rules under the law. If your state has adopted California's rules, then if you go to look at cars, you have a huge choice of electric cars. Basically, every model available in the United States will be available in your state and, uh, and in adequate numbers that you should be able to get one, even if you have to go on a waiting list. You know, we have more demand than supply for these things right now. If you live in a state that has not adopted those California rules, then the cars on the market in your state uh, are, the electric cars are minimal. Uh, you probably have very few models and a very low allocation of cars that you can buy. People just don't know that, that what's even available to buy on the market depends on state rules regarding automobiles. And there's just a bunch of examples like this where, um, you know, the efficiency of the appliances that we buy, of the televisions that we buy, has to do with, um, uh, you know, government rules and, uh, you know, how they're applied and how they're enforced and, and you know, how advanced they are. Uh, our buildings, I mean, you know, many, many building codes, the building codes are adopted at the state and local level, even though they're based on model codes that come out of Washington, uh, out of a, uh, out of a, a sort of a quasi private group in Washington. Uh, but a lot of states and cities are behind, they're 10 years behind on the building codes, they just haven't caught up with the latest uh, codes the latest model codes and those codes have significant advancements in terms of the energy efficiency of buildings. You know, how many people in America are sort of going down and up and demanding that their building code be updated? Uh, but we should, because if we don't do that, it means we're still, we are still today putting up crappy buildings in America uh, that are gonna be climate liabilities for the next 40 or 50 years or whatever the lifetime of that building is uh, and we know how to not do that. So, you know, all these things, it, it does require the public to sort of educate themselves a little bit, which is why we wrote a book about it. But uh, it's all doable and it's all it's all fairly politically tractable. We're not talking about miracles here. I feel like, too, it's a big messaging problem. Like I have some faith in the human race that if we had 100 percent of Americans who knew everything you're talking about, and we're able to make these choices on a ballot or in a box or online or in their neighborhood or city town, I think the overwhelming amount of people would do it. I can't imagine people who wouldn't want their children to grow up in a livable world, who wouldn't want a cleaner environment. I just feel like people don't know. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, you know, it's it's the polling on this is really fascinating. If you um, uh, and the numbers I'm about to give you sort of come out of the Yale program on climate change communication, they do regular polling of the American public. And if you ask people, you know, is human caused climate change a problem? You get um, something like it's it's lately it's been around 70 percent of the American public uh, says yes to that. Uh, 60, 70%, somewhere in that range. It's a majority. Uh, if you ask people, do they support clean energy, you get closer to 90%. Uh, so there's some delta in there of people who don't even think climate change is a problem, but e nevertheless, they support clean energy for whatever reason, right? Um, 
uh, you know, maybe they just like the idea of generating, you know, electricity on their roof or something. I'm not quite sure who those people are, but, you know, there is a very broad, now it's probably shallow, but there's a very broad consensus uh, across American society that we want, you know, that we want a cleaner energy system. And you're probably aware I mean, a lot of the real success of renewable energy, particularly wind energy, has occurred in these windy Republican-run states in the middle of the country, right? Um, uh, Iowa is getting some, something like 60% of their electric power from the wind these days. Uh, that figure in Oklahoma is approaching 40%, I think. Um, in Kansas, it's, uh, it's approaching 50%. You know, even, into, even in mighty Texas, uh, you know, they're at 20% and rising fast on uh, on wind and then solar is coming on at a good clip too in, in Texas. And so um, I, I do feel like if we get past the argument over the science of climate change and start talking about the solutions, uh, we pick up more of the public and, and there is a consensus to support it. And um, we, we need a more imaginative politics that kind of focuses on those solutions. Are you hopeful that the human race will figure this out and we don't have to go through the next mass extinction? I think we are figuring it out. The problem is it's just not happening fast enough, right? So, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, emissions are still rising globally, uh, but, you know, there's a brand new pick, prediction out from the Energy, International Energy Agency uh, they're going to rise uh, very minimally this year compared to the big jump we saw uh, last year, you know, coming out of the pandemic. Of course, they dropped during the pandemic and then coming out of the pandemic and the recovery, uh, we had a pretty huge rise in emissions. Uh, it may be minimal this year. Uh, we may be nearing the point where, um, you know, we finally top out and emissions begin to fall. But you know, to meet our climate goals, they really need to be falling already, and they need to be falling at a very brisk clip, and we're just not there yet. And so, um, you know, do I think we're going to convert to a clean energy system? Yes, I do. And, and I think we're well on our way in a lot of countries already. Uh, the problem is we're just so behind the curve uh, that the 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 climate goals, you know, expressed in the Paris Climate Agreement from 2015 are um, nearly out of reach already. And uh, unless we start going much, much faster, they, they will be out of reach. And so um, it would be a shame to kind of solve this problem and, and, you know, solve it so late that we've bought ourselves, you know, enormous, enormous damage to the climate system. And, you know, I mean, the truth is we already have, right? There's already a lot of real serious damage baked in, including, you know, many feet of sea level rise. So, um, I mean, all that's just a way of saying the problem is really urgent. And, you know, yes, I'm confident that we're slowly figuring out the solutions, but we have just got to sort of go much faster. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. And I hope you'll come back maybe in the next few months so we can just keep talking about this and how it's developing. In closing, what would you say to the millions of climate people around the world we have a big audience, about half a million who listen. Any words of inspiration for those to uh, keep on keeping on and to uh, not give up the good fight? 
don't fall into the trap of uh, please of feeling like you can't make a difference or feeling uh, disempowered by this subject. I know that's a kind of a buzzy modern word, but that is how people feel. Um, there's a, I read, there's a, there's an example I really like, um, you know, Britain, uh, uh, is, was it 15 years ago now passed, um, what's probably still the world's most advanced, uh, climate law, uh, setting up a whole structure of, you know, targets and, um, uh, and, and a, an independent, you know, government committee and, and such to help them meet their goals. That was a direct response to a public demand, you know, organized by a group called Friends of the Earth. Uh, and, you know, people held concerts, people held, you know, bake sales and fundraisers, and, and the British public got their government. It was a conservative government that passed that law. Uh, I'm sorry, let, let me back up. It was a the, the labor government passed it after the conservatives embraced it, embraced the concept and, you know, sort of spooked labor into finally moving on the issue where they'd been dragging their feet. So, you know, and, and of course, here in the United States, I mean, this this bill that just passed Congress would not have passed if uh, a whole lot of people, including many young people, had not demanded in the last presidential election uh, that the winning candidate embrace a bold climate agenda. We are not powerless here. And yes, this is moving too slowly, um, but it is moving. Uh, and we need to keep building the movement that we have. It needs to be bigger. It needs more people. We need to talk to our friends and neighbors. Uh, young people need to go to their grandparents and their parents and say, how are you voting? And are you thinking about this issue when you vote? And are you worried about my future when you cast that vote? Uh, uh, we, we just we just have to get out of this trap of thinking uh, that we're stuck and, and realizing that we do have the power to move the needle here. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.